All right, so now we are launching into our second semester. You could argue that our first discussion last semester was focused on the foundations of our faith. And tonight we're going to be talking about sacrament. And we're kind of going to be talking about sacrament from here on out. So you could really say that the second half is on the sacraments. And so I thought it might be useful for us to do a review, a comprehensive review of everything we've done so far because you um, might have forgotten things over Christmas. And so I thought obviously we should do start that with a, you know, a major quiz to see what you knew. And then I thought there'd be objections to that. So maybe I should just try to give a quick summary. So here's the basic summary. It's really a good idea to become Catholic. <laughs> hmm? That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there's your review. <laughs> you can go listen to the lectures if you like. <laughs> so let's talk then about sacraments, <clears throat> starting off with what they are. And to get at this, let's start with something from literature, namely the concept of an image. All poetic imagery is built on the notion of this bespeaks that. Or another word for bespeaks is suggests. So on Valentine's Day, you give your wife a rose, right? And you give a rose because a rose bespeaks, suggests, love, right? <clears throat> um, we give rings at weddings, and rings bespeak fidelity, right? Birthday celebrations, we use candles and the hats and the stuff flying through the air. I can't remember the name of that now, and cakes, all of which bespeaks celebration, right? And look at the imagery that we surround funerals with. Dark, veil, ash, right? So our entire lives are framed by imagery. In fact, it is by means of imagery that we express significance. And by we, I don't mean the church, I mean human beings. In the church, we do the same thing because, of course, we're human. So it's very interesting about what motivates human beings. If you had a command that told you, don't steal, you could understand the rule and say, okay, yeah, I understand that. But think about when you were young and your parents would give you these sorts of commands. But there are other ways that parents try to suggest to us, notice I use the word suggest, to suggest to us that stealing is really not a good idea. And one of the ways they might do that is by means of stories. And so traditionally, one of the stories that fathers taught their sons was the story of George Washington, right, with the cherry tree and about the lying about it. And there the rule is don't lie. And you can say, Junior, don't lie to your mother. But you could also, instead of giving a rule like that, tell your son a story about George Washington and the cherry tree. And at the end of the story, you would say, now, do you want to be like George Washington? And every little American boy is like, yeah, I want to be like George Washington. Well, then I better not lie. And that idea of being like George Washington by means of heroic moral imagery through a story reaches out to that little boy way more powerfully than the rule. In fact, if you think about the things that motivate you the most, they're not rules. They're images. 
okay? Images. So imagery is extremely powerful for human beings. And the reason is images mediate or link up two things. The world of the physical and the world of the intellect, the concept, and merges them together in the imagination. And it's in the imagination that we have all the arts, music, drama, poetry, all the things that are participation in which this thing here suggests this thing over here. Now, we can take imagery and step it up and make it religious. In religious imagery, we again start with something natural. Again, it bespeaks, but here, it's the sacred. Not just something significant, but the sacred significant. You say, well, what do you mean? Give me an example. Well, how about when you look at a great waterfall, and you're looking at Niagara, the water's pouring over. Have you ever, any of you been to Niagara Falls? Seen the pictures on the television? It's just shockingly huge, right? The roar of the water. And if you're a religious person, it kind of makes you think about divine power. In fact, it's hard not to. Or you see a lion, and you're impressed by divine authority and divine majesty. Because the lion's majestic power, his monarchialism in the safari, suggests to you the magnificence of divine power and divine authority. So, we have lots of images in the world. You could even argue, technically, everything in the world is image and bespeaks something about God, right? And so, the natural bespeaks the sacred. That's how that works. And yet, we're still not at sacrament. To get to sacrament, we have another step. This is building. You see the idea? In a sacrament, the natural acted upon in some special way bespeaks, there's the image we've been seeing, but also enacts The sacred. Bespeaks and enacts. So sacraments are not merely religious images. They are images. They are religious images. But they're more than religious images. Because they actually do something. Okay? Sacraments effect an act of God on the receiver. They are the way in which God generally acts on human beings. So in the church we say, and this is the phrase you probably heard, the sacraments are the means of grace. Because God's action, intervention in the world, is grace. And so sacraments are the means of grace. Let's use an example of a sacrament. 
<coughs> which perhaps I don't I don't know what all of your specific situations are, but maybe some of you will become baptized at uh, Easter, the Easter vigil, and of course your son just got baptized, right? All right, so so in baptism we have something natural. So you were there at the baptism. What was the natural element that you noticed in the baptism? Good. Water. <laughs> Not a trick question. <laughs> Correct. All right. Now, water was acted upon, right, by the priest or the deacon. The, did the deacon? Okay. So the deacon um, <clears throat> acted upon the water, used the water to act upon your son. Yes? And that bespeaks what? What does baptism as an image, the water, represent? What's happening in baptism? Yep, rebirth. And what else does water suggest? Cleansing. Cleansing? Good. Of sins, yeah? Well, water bespeaks natural washing. Water achieves natural washing. Correct. We wash our hands, washing. and then in the ritual, the, um, yeah, exactly. So, these are the images contained within water. Well, some of the images. Obviously, we use it for... There's actually a lot of imagery in water. We drink it, too. So, All right, so water, rebirth, and... But then, this is as far as a religious image would go. Right? And remember, some of our Protestant friends, that's as far as they think baptism does go. They don't think baptism does anything. It's just a religious symbolism. Okay? That's to say, it's nothing but a religious image. An important one, perhaps, but that's it. However, that's not what the church has ever taught about baptism. Well, it is, but the church goes beyond that. That's not enough. Because in, a diff in addition to bespeaking this concept of rebirth, cleansing, washing away, it actually enacts the thing. It is both this and that at once. So when your son was baptized, he was not just representatively the idea of rebirth. He was reborn. Yeah? His sins, his original sin was washed. You see the idea? So, in becoming baptized, your son was changed. Changed how? By God achieving a specific action. And that specific action was done through the sacrament of baptism. Every single sacrament, and there are seven of them, has this same exact structure. Some element of the natural world, we call it matter, is acted upon in some way by someone, and we'll look at how this works in the specifics, which bespeaks an idea, like any image would, but then also enacts and brings that about in the real. And you can see how this is the, uh, the way in which Christian imagery always superseded the pagan. Many ideas that we find in Christianity are represented in paganism. For example, the idea of the corn, you know, that falls into the ground and dies, and then in spring it brings forth new life. This is found in fertility festivals in ancient paganism everywhere. And of course it is, because that's the imagery it represents. Rebirth, new life. Now, Christianity contains exactly the same concepts. 
and the same exact images, right? The, the word of God is sown into the ground, and then you hope it brings forth fruit. And yet, Christianity goes beyond. Because it doesn't merely suggest this is a really nice idea. It enacts it. And how does the church, how does Christianity enact the imagery of going down into death and then being reborn in the newness of life? The resurrection of the dead. Jesus did it. And then for us, through our participation in that death and resurrection, through baptism. So, here's a way to think of it. The pagans had myth. Christianity also has myth. That's the imagery. But for us, the myth becomes fact. The myth is realized. Okay? So it's not just the idea of God somehow coming into the world and doing something wonderful. He's incarnate as a baby in Bethlehem in this particular year. Fact. God has finally actually intervened. See what I'm saying? All right. Now, let's talk about why do we need sacraments at all, and then we'll get into the specifics of the sacraments. Before I do that, any questions about this? All right. Let's talk about sacraments' role in faith. We talked about a few weeks ago about the peculiar situation of our being separated from God by two different things. One was the fact that we've sinned, so this is a big problem for human beings. But even if we hadn't fallen, if our race hadn't fallen, we're still finite creatures. <coughs> Excuse me, and separated by God's infinitude. So how do creatures, both finite and fallen into sin as we are, ever figure out a way to ascend up and connect to God who is infinitely good. <coughs> and we said that it would require some act by God, some act by God to bring us up to the level where we could see him as he is in himself. In other words, an act of grace. But God cannot do that without our permission. And you say, why? Because that would force us to love him. If you see God as he truly is in his own essence, you will be, find it impossible to not love him. And that would negate your free will. <coughs> so God doesn't just push people into the beatific vision. He doesn't force them to become slave lovers of himself because that's not true love. He has to provide some means to test us, to give us the option to say yay or nay to his offer of love. And when we talked about Adam and Eve, we saw how the command, the thing that's given the test, cannot be something that's obvious. Like, Adam, don't hit Eve, because Eve would never have been tempted to, Adam would never have been tempted to hit Eve, because he wouldn't have our distortions of the flesh like we do. So God had to give something extra, something not moral, not a moral commandment, but a sacramental command. Thus, we have the tree and don't eat of the fruit. Okay? All through the history, we find these kinds of sacramental commands being given. The Israelites had theirs, circumcised the young boys, and of course participate in the Passover. And of course, we have our sacraments. All of these sacraments offer something that we do understand and also something that we do not fully understand. 
And we're expected to exercise faith in the part that we do not understand on the basis of trusting the one who gave us the part that we do understand. Which, if you remember, is that very complex conception of what faith really is. It's not irrational, but it's not like you see the whole picture. So when you take the Eucharist, when you come into the church on Easter, you're going to be taking a wafer into your mouth and the wine. And you're going to be amazed to find out that it tastes just like a wafer and wine. You may be like, well, I thought it was going to be the body and blood of Christ. Yes, it is. You're like, but it doesn't taste like that. That's true, and that's called grace. Thank God it doesn't taste like flesh and blood. That's a mercy, okay? And the church has explanations for that. But you may be like, well, how do I really know it's the body and blood? If I look at it in a microscope, all of its attributes are going to be bread and wine. Correct. Exactly. How do we know it's the body and blood of Christ? Because Jesus said it is. That's it. So the question isn't, can we directly verify it's body and blood, right? Because we know the answer to that is no. But can we trust Jesus? And of course, did he give us any reason to think that he's the Son of God? <sighs> Massive evidence. So, again, you see how faith works. The things that we do not see, we trust on the basis of the things that we do see. So, sacraments, every single sacrament functions like this. And we have to put faith in those things as the means by which God has provided grace for the world. Okay, everyone understand that? All right. Now, before we get into the specifics, let's talk about their role in completing human nature. Can I erase this? Human nature consists of two kinds of stuff. You might recall that we define human beings as rational animals. <coughs> and if we broaden these categories, the animal side is part of what we think of as matter, the physical. And rational is part of what we might call something immaterial, not reducible to matter. And in religious terms, we call that spirit. Now, as you've seen in the example of baptism, in the example of this bespeaks that, all sacraments are something natural or physical that bespeaks something spiritual. So every single sacrament has a material component, and an immaterial spiritual component. And I want you to see how extraordinarily fitting this is for human beings. Because this is what we are. Angels could not participate in sacraments. Why? Not, not material, not physical. Animals cannot participate in sacraments. Why? Not they lack rationality, they're not spiritual beings. So, sacraments are a uniquely human mode of God acting in the world. 
And I want you to also notice how all sacraments are themselves a participation in something even greater that caused them. The Incarnation. When God, pure spirit, enters into matter and becomes one. Human nature is the image of God. Sacraments are the means by which the action of God is perfected in creatures composed of matter and spirit. Hence, the sacraments are absolutely essential. It will not do for us to say, well, you know, I love God, but I don't, I don't really participate in the sacraments. If you do that, you cut off the means that God gave to enact His grace to you. Right? All right, with that in mind, let's talk about the sacraments. And let's see if we can figure out what they are. And let's get at these two components. Sacrament, the immaterial part, the material part, and then over here I'm gonna add an extra category the minister. In other words, who administers the sacrament? Well, in some cases, yes, but not necessarily. We have to look. This is going to be very interesting to you. All right, let's first get at all of them. Okay, there's seven, so that's a hint. And we've given one of them away already, baptism. So we'll start there. There are three sacraments that are called the sacraments of initiation that kind of get you going. And... All of those, can I just ask a question if anyone's been, not been baptized? Or is this too personal? Can I just, we can talk about this stuff. Is anyone getting baptized at Easter? You are, and you are, oh, this is so exciting. Oh, this is so exciting. Oh, that's so good. Because you three will get all three of these sacraments, the first three, in the same time period, not quite at the same moment, but one after another, okay? So, it's going to be amazing for you. <laughs> okay, baptism, the next one, the confirmation, very good. And then after you're confirmed, what are you eligible to do? There you go. The Eucharist. Okay, so these are the first three. Now there's four more. Let's see if we can figure out what they are. Marriage. Marriage. Okay, let's put it this way. I'm going to put marriage here because none of us are priest types. But technically, this is vocations. Yeah, it's marriage and the religious vocation. So really, we shouldn't be calling this marriage. We should call this the vocations. Marriage is one of them. The priesthood type, none. Those are the other types. But we won't focus on that because those aren't who we are. Is that good enough? Okay, so remember, holy orders fits in here. Holy orders. Good? Okay. Um, last rites? I'll put that at the bottom. Okay. But we don't call it last rites, right? What do we call it now? Yes. The anointing of the sick. Technically, last rites incorporates the anointing of the yes. sick, but it is not reducible to the anointing of the sick. 
But the last rites is not a sacrament. It incorporates a sacrament. Because, in fact, we just did the anointing of the sick here a couple of weeks ago. So we'll put that down here. It's not just for death. So if you took this sacrament, that doesn't mean you're going to die. <laughs> the anointing of the sick. How many do we have? One, two, three, four, five. We need two more. Holy orders and ordination are... A separate one from marriage? Am I getting this wrong? Yeah. Yes, I am? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I should have this here. Holy orders is its own thing. It can be oh. with marriage as a... Gotcha. All right, 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 right. Pay no attention to me. I'm, you know, I'm just an ex-Protestant. Yeah. But there's still a gap. What's in the gap? It's the one none of you want to do. What is it called? Yes, reconciliation used to be called confession or pen penance, right? Now they may try to give a po positive term. It's like somehow that's going to inspire you. It does, sound a little nice, it? it does, doesn't it? It does. Okay, there we go. Seven, yeah? Okay. So let us try to get at the immaterial and the material part or the spiritual and the physical part of each one and then figure out who ministers this sacrament and try to understand the significance of those. Since we just talked about baptism, this one ought to be the easiest one. So, in, well, let's put the, we'll start with the matter. What is the matter of baptism? Water. Good, water. Good. And what is the spiritual immaterial part? Uh, the Good. Call that regeneration, right? All right, and who administers this sacrament? See, that's interesting, right? Because the deacon did that. But that's not all. Isn't it three or more? Huh? Somebody can invoke. Oh, God. One can invoke God's name. Any person, including a non-believer, an atheist, can invalidly administer the sacrament of baptism. Seriously, no. If, yeah. if they intend to do what the church intends... And they use the Trinitarian formula. Huh. Now, Deacon, yes, sir. can you come in here and listen to what it is I'm about to say? So, like, for example, mm -hmm. we're out in the middle of nowhere, yep. and mom has a baby, there's no priest. Correct. And you want to baptize the baby immediately. Yes. Right? Because the, yeah, Indian, the, the Indians are coming, and yep. the bears are coming, and so on and so forth. So that's the purpose for mm -hmm. any lay person to be able to do Correct. So long Let's as add to the scenario. It's a desert. Okay. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Baptism is validly performed if the words are used in the intent is And the material. And since you can come up with cases where the material is not there, like um, the thief on the cross, yeah. there's also something known as the baptism of blood yeah. in martyrdom. And in cases where you're running as hard as you can to get to the water, and just before you get there, you die. Okay. Baptism of desire. In other words, no matter what kind of scenarios we try to come up with, you can't beat God. He always has a way to, okay, fine. But, the general, but those don't invalidate the general methodology. The general methodology is still water, like this. Now, the, what I wanted to say, and make sure the deacon's here to ask, to make sure I get this. 
it's my understanding that it is not appropriate for us to take our relatives' children who are opposed to the faith and baptize them secretly in bathtubs, correct? Unless we have some compelling reason and we ought to talk to a priest, our priest about that first. Okay, so don't make converts of all these people secretly. Um, this is crossing lines, essentially. Right? That, that, it's true. I mean, you, you talked about the efficacy of the enacting kinds of things that happen with sacraments and baptism. You know, those things happen to them. But they need to be, we need to continue to cooperate. We need to continue to be nurtured. And if you end up pouring water on somebody's head and that's the last time they ever get their faith nurtured, you kind of stunted their growth with it. So it's not a bad thing, but it's not, it's not what we do. We don't do things against the people's will. And it would be hard to do it, it would be hard to do it in the church where you bring in your nephew in because they want parental kind of stuff. They're going to check some of the records. But a lot of people will just do it in their, do it in their bathroom. My wife's aunt baptized all the babies in her bathroom before they got baptized in the church, just in case. <laughs> my mother had holy water in her bag, and she was intending to baptize my nephew. Fortunately, my brother and his wife consented, but that kid was getting baptized whether they said yes or not. Right. That's <laughs> but except for these emergency-type situations, really do it the traditional way. Go to the church and have the deacon or the priest do it. That's the, the general way. Okay. Next. Confirmation. What is the matter and what is the spirit? Start with the matter. Is it education or prayer? No. Those are great things, but no. Who here has been confirmed? What do they do to you? Correct. The holy oil, the chrism. All right. Chrism of holy oil. It might not look like that, but that's what it's supposed to say. Oh, okay. Is that where you get... Chrismation in the Orthodox Church. Yeah, I was, I was Orthodox, so I was chrismated, okay. which is kind of similar to confirmation. It's the same sacrament, just under a different name, and some variations in the way the ritual works. Well, that's where you get to christening, <coughs> hmm? isn't it? Same as being christened? No, I think christening is really a baptism. Mm -hmm. That's baptism. Now, in the Orthodox Church, chrismation and baptism are simultaneous events. That's part of the reason in that tradition you might think of them as merged. But in the Catholic Church, they've separated them out, and there's a reason, and that's part of what we'll talk about here. So what is the immaterial element of confirmation? What is happening to you when that oil is put on you? Confirming that I want to stay, that I'm making an active choice to stay. Okay, that's your action. Yep, so there's a faith action on your side. And you can see why this is very important when we baptize infants, right? Where is the free choice of an infant? And of course, free choices are impossible for infants. So someone else acts as a surrogate for them. And who's the natural surrogate for an infant? Their parents and the godparents. And really, if you think about it, if you listen closely, the whole church joins the baptismal vows. So the whole church is acting in the stead of the infant. 
which then leads us back to the question, well, then how do they ever get a choice? And the answer is they must confirm that choice, and the church must confirm that at confirmation. And that's why confirmation is put on people who can think and choose, right? They're older folks, children at least of a certain age. What is, what's the traditional age for people to be? Fourteen? Uh, varies by diocese, but usually... Uh, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. Some places it's still to 16. Sorry? In some places it's still to 16. Oh, well, it's 16. There you go. Sometimes it has to do with the availability of the bishop. And also, isn't this also when the understanding is the Holy Spirit is, in, is instilled? So on our side, it's faith. I'm going to put us. And remember, this is always an enactment of God. So here's the divine part. The Holy Spirit is given. You might remember at the very beginning of the church when the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, you could argue that was a kind of confirmation. God was confirming for them that this was authentic and confirming to the Jews by the means of this extraordinary sign. Now, we no longer get winds and tongues of fire and suddenly all start speaking extraordinary languages, but we don't need that sign. The church exists. The church is the sign now. But for all that, the Holy Spirit still, at that point, comes in and becomes a part of you. So those of you getting confirmed, just you wait. Holy Spirit's on his way. Very exciting. Ah, Eucharist. Eucharist. All right. Matter and spirit. Oh, minister of confirmation. Very good. Yep. Well, this one was anyone subject to the conditions Elisa said. Minister of the Sacrament of Confirmation. Is the bishop the sole person that can do this? No. Nope. Priests can do it? Deacons? Not deacons. Priests. So it's... It'll be a priest. Remember, the priest acts in the place of the bishop and has most of the bishop's authority. I think the priest has all of the bishop's sacramental authority except not the capacity to appoint Priests and bishops, right? They cannot, ordain. they cannot ordain. So that's the one thing that's solely reserved to the bishop of all these other rights. But we cannot ourselves administer the sacrament of confirmation to people. And notice the key element here. We have no means of making the holy oil efficacious. This is a power that's been given to the bishop. Okay? All right, the Eucharist. What is the matter... Of the Eucharist. Water and wine. I mean wine and bread. Yeah, it's not water. No, wine and bread. Which is very interesting. There's water in it. Right. Okay? But not for the reason you think, to cheapen the vet cost for the church. Uh -huh. <laughs> why is why is there water in there? Anybody know? Why is there water mixed in it? Well, the blood is human, right? Do we need it for that reason? Mm -hmm. Remember when they stabbed him at the end and proved that he was dead, but when they separated the blood and the water, separated there? Mm -hmm. um, Jeff, can I ask a question? Yes. Someone that has, knows nothing about this. Um, this is actual wine. This is not grape juice, right? Okay. So what um, does the church do for individuals who are unable to drink alcohol? Well, here's the thing. 
for you to take the Eucharist in its fullness, you can take just one part. So you could take just the host. And if you're sick, for example, for the sake of everyone else, don't drink from the cup so you don't spread your germs. Um, so there's, that's the solution. Well, if you're someone that has an addiction to alcohol, is there something that the... You definitely don't want to take, a, take, right. take the wine. receiving the full Eucharist, the bread and the we're wine, just, under both means. So if means. you, for example, if you're gluten intolerant, okay. you can just, just drink the wine. Just the wine, the wine and you receive both Got it. elements. And that's a reiteration that for some reason didn't hit me until last year, that Jesus is fully... In each one of those, fully in the blood, okay, fully in the body, okay. You don't have to have both to get all of Jesus. You can okay. just one is enough for, okay. for Him to be there for you. You don't need both so places. Why do we have both? He had this idea of having two things, and let's ask the question: What does bread bespeak? What is bread for us? Food, right? It's eating. But water... Yes, but water is the... We would think it would be bread and water for feeding, right? But it's not. It's bread and wine. Why is wine different? What did we do with wine? When do you drink wine? Celebration. Celebration. So, the Eucharist is not just a bare necessity to cut my, bread and, my spiritual bread and water. It's not bread and water. It's bread and wine. It is full feastal celebration. This is why we never fast fully, if even during Lent, on Sunday. Every single Sunday is a feast day in the church. Because that's when the Eucharist is celebrated. And the Eucharist is a celebratory event. Again, remember, the purpose of the church is to bring us to human fullness not the bare minimum, just bread and water, but wine, okay? So it's extraordinary that wine was Jesus' selection for all kinds of reasons. I mean, good grief. We could, that's one of those biblical things Elisa was talking about. Scan the Bible for wine and see where it pops up, and you'll see all these Eucharistic connections. All right, the immaterial. Since we have two elements, physical elements, there must then be two corresponding spiritual things. With the wine... When the priest consecrates the wine, what does it become? Blood of Christ and body. Why do we think this? Because Jesus said it. This is my body. This is my blood. Right? And remember, he had already told the disciples in John 6 that if any man does not eat of my body and drink of my blood, he has no part with me. And the people around him are like, what? I mean, he can't be serious about that, right? He's just speaking figuratively. And Jesus emphasized, they're like, he's crazy. The church actually goes a little bit farther than saying that the Eucharist is just the body and blood. The church teaches that when you take the Eucharist, you're receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ into yourself. Yeah, because Christ is not actually divisible. He's God. So you either get God or you don't get God. So this is why some of the other traditions will talk about receiving Christ or receiving the divine essence. All true. But in Roman church, we want to emphasize the fact that it is the body and the blood. But it's not just body and blood. It's participation in the eternal life of God. 
That's the full significance. Eternal life. For this is the food of the church. And back to the John 6 reference. Everyone else was leaving Jesus because they're like, nobody would tell us to do this. Cannibalizing him, that's ridiculous. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, well, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, no way. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Where are we going to go? And Jesus is like, finally, somebody gets it right. But flesh and blood didn't tell you that, Peter. The Father in heaven. So when Jesus later on says to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do you in remembrance of me. Remembrance in Greek is an enactment. So this is an enactment of this event. It is our participation in that event. That's why we sometimes call it the Lord's Supper, because he was the one who initiated this personally. And we participate in his death. All right. Who can administer the Eucharist? Nope. You are not a minister in that sense. You are a Eucharistic minister, but you aren't the person who enacts it. Correct. So by minister, we mean technically, right? The priest and the bishop. All right. Marriage. We have two vocations in the church, or as you might think of them as ways of life, ways of being. And you can be married, or you can be unmarried, but still in family. It's, the faith is essentially a familial organization. It employs natural families and brings them into the wider family of God, of God's own family in the Trinity. And it employs spiritual families. You'll notice that all the holy orders, we use language like brother so-and-so, father so-and-so, sister, Mother, you see how there's familial language? And they build orders on a familial basis. So in the end, nobody's supposed to be an island that's stuck out of the system all by themselves. Even if you're in a holy order, you are still supposed to be a part of the community of God. Technically, honey, just so that we're clear, mm -hmm. uh, monks and nuns are not receiving the sacrament of holy orders. This is just so deacons, priests, and bishops, the th big three. So... They're not getting the right, they're not getting the sacrament of holy orders, but they're not in the vocation of marriage. That's why you were saying earlier we need to distinguish the vocation yeah, from I the just sacrament. Want people to be confused. Oh, I'm confused right now. No, it makes sense to me. Here's the difference the holy order is a sacrament. So when someone becomes a priest, there is a sacramental act of ordination that makes that happen. When you're married, you're not ordained, you're getting married. So in your life, you can either become married or you become ordained. Historic. I'm confusing it worse. Yes. I retract all comments. Listen to Elisa. I, if he were a single man and yeah. he became a monk, which is joining religious life but not becoming a priest, he's, you're not receiving the sacrament of holy order. Because I'm not ordained. Correct. That's what I just said. You made it sound like you either choose marriage or holy orders. Those are the two. I was right. going to distinguish that. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, okay, sorry. And so, like, what about single people that aren't monks or nuns or married? The church says there are two vocations. Okay. So if you are not married and you're single, 
then presumably you're aiming at one of two things. You're hoping to get married at some point, or you're focusing your life on something non-marital but still familial, and that would presumably be some kind of charity. Now, that may not be becoming an actual nun. Maybe you'll do something else, but you're going to end up devoting your life in some familial way, on a richer way than you would, because you have a lot more time. But everyone is supposed to be part of a familial community. That's what the two vocation principles mean. But what Elisa is saying is the holy orders apply to only some of the people in that side. Mm -hmm. Only some of them receive the specific sacrament of ordination. That's what this order is. This is a sacrament of ordination. And of course, it gets very tricky when you realize that there are some people that have both. Back in the day, obviously, there were many people who were both ordained and married. And they're discussing this in the Amazon case. He's one of those double people to being a deacon. I'm sorry, the He has both because he's a deacon, so he's ordained as a deacon. But he's also been married. Well, they're discussing that. They're discussing it. But there are people who come into the church from other traditions like the Orthodox tradition. And in the Orthodox tradition, they still maintain the old rules in which there was never mandated celibacy for all priests. So it's more like deacons now in our orders. Um, So there you could have a priest who's married. The bishops aren't married, but the priest can be. So if a priest like that came into the Roman church into full communion with Rome, he could be appointed as a priest in Rome because he already has the priestly office. But of course, he wouldn't have to get rid of his wife. So he would also be a person that has both gotcha. both and sacraments. Roger, you took holy orders, so you were ordained, but you're married too, and that's okay for deacons. Permanent de- the permanent diaconate, the order, I won't let him talk about it, but yes, the permanent okay. diaconate, okay. there's, there's a rank of holy orders. Got it. Okay. So. Why celibacy for priests? Well. Here's the original story on that. Sometime read St. Paul's letter to Corinth. You might read the whole thing, but start around chapter 7. All right, And there Paul, St. Paul starts talking about marriage. And he says something which strikes our ears as very funny. He says, now, marriage is not a bad thing. Let me just be clear about that. Nobody talks that way anymore. Okay, Because we all assume marriage is a great thing. Now we have to say things like, now look, being a priest is not a bad thing, okay? When Paul's writing, the fervor was kind of going the other direction. More and more people were choosing the celibate life. And you find in the church throughout history, the emphasis kind of goes one way or the other. So he was writing to the people saying, look, not everybody has to pursue the life of celibacy. It's fine if you want to get married. But there's... Two sides. You can live the consecrated life where you're unmarried, or you can live the marital life, the two vocation doctrine that we talk about now. Now, what he says is it is a voluntary choice. You get to choose that you want to participate in this particular kind of life. So, originally, celibacy was mandated for no one. Even Peter had a wife, as everybody knows. And he's the first pope and the chief of the apostles. But what St. Paul says about Peter is telling, which is, Paul says, I could have a wife like anybody else, but frankly, I don't have time for it. And I don't want to be kind of dragged around by my wife like Peter is, you know, he's kind of chained down on there. And you can just...
you can like hear the little rivalry between the two vocations. Like the army and the navy are always have this rivalry. Okay, it's the same kind of good-humored rivalry, right? Um, but that's a major problem with wives. They cost a lot. They take up a lot of time, <laughs> massive time waster. And, and Paul basically says this in the letter. He says, look, you give up a lot of time for pure work for the faith when you marry. But we need marriages too. And he, it's interesting the way he says it because he keeps saying things like this. Now, this is me, not the Lord. And then he gives his opinion. But he's trying to say, look, I'm on one side of this two-vocation side, and I'm giving you my perspective. But these are not divine commands. See what he's doing? Now, later on, it became increasingly, increasingly clear to the church, both east and west, that bishops have no time for wives. I mean, they just don't. And so what they begin to do is draw the bishops, not just from the priests, but from the monastic priests from the ones that were part of the celibate orders, all right? And that continued, and priests could choose to be consecrated in the sense of being celibate if they wanted to be, and so could deacons. You didn't have to be married as a deacon. And then over time, more priests began to choose the celibate path in the same way that the bishops did. And then at some point, the Western church and the Eastern church kind of got separated. Remember, we talked about this historically, the Eastern Western Roman Empire, the problems of the barbarians. And so in the East, the tradition continued to develop one way, where you had a tradition of married priests and unmarried priests. And in the West, the tradition continued to develop. And because of certain kinds of economic issues, time issues, the church came to the conclusion that it would be better if all of our priests, for sake of order and organization, were all of them unmarried. From a logistical standpoint, it is a major issue for the church to try to support entire families. And then you have problems with property and rights of inheritance, which were big deals in the era of the noble, noble world. So it became to them increasingly obvious, look, we just need to make sure that all the priests are unmarried like the bishops. And we'll allow both vocations to be options for our permanent, not the uh, seminarian deacons, right? The permanent deacons. But remember, that was a choice of order. So when you hear now, Pope Francis is considering, and the church is saying, look, we're out of priests here, here, here. The Amazon, they mean, they don't see a priest, but ever, and we need more priests, and there just aren't enough. What St. Paul did back in the day himself, he would just go through the church and say, you're ordained, you're ordained, you're ordained, bam, you're all priests. Or as Elise and I were discussing, if, you, if we colonized Mars, and we had one bishop up there, and he suddenly realized, oh no, I'm going down, you know, I'm sick. He could literally take every one of the married males and say, okay, I'm ordaining you all priests and three of you bishops. Get out there and sp spread the faith, <laughs> but we don't want it to you know, not have priests. That's the kind of capability. There's nothing wrong with married priests at all. There's nothing immoral about married priests, but it was a choice for sake of order. Can that choice be reversed? Of course it can be reversed. Remember the issue I told you at the beginning. The church is extremely flexible and adaptable in her organization, because the organization comes down to three things. Bishop, priest, deacon. It's an order, an organization of offices. The structure is entirely dependent on the needs of the church at the time. And the church's structure varies with who they're dealing with. Like if they're dealing with Chinese communists, they're going to play a certain game with them. If they're dealing with Canada, 
It's going to be a completely different kind of thing. So we'll talk about politics in the church at the, near the end of our final time together. But the bottom line of it is the church can adapt. And so we've done things a certain way for a long time. On this issue, you could say, well, it's been a thousand years. Why should it ever change? It changes if the church thinks it needs to change because it's for the good of the people. Now, remember, that's the order of the church. That's not our doctrine. We don't change our doctrine, not our dogma. It's not our morals. We don't start saying, well, I guess it's all right to kill people. No, that doesn't change. So sometimes when they hear people hear change, they get panicked and they think, oh, by change, they mean anything goes. No, 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 no. We're only talking about those internal decisions with respect to order. So celibacy is a doctrine. Correct. Celibacy is a discipline on the priesthood, which wow. can be changed. Yes. In the same way that, you know, sometimes they, you talk about like celibacy and poverty, not all people in holy orders take take vows of poverty. They can have bank accounts or money or whatnot. Right. It's an optional discipline depending on which order you join. If you join an order that's devoted to the poor and you decide to renounce sorry, you decide to renounce worldly goods, you can do that. But it's a discipline on the order that you choose. The church a thousand years ago made celibacy a discipline of the priesthood, but it is something that could be changed. And the Byzantine church is in communion with Rome. No, almost. Okay. They're technically, they're, they don't really call, talk that way. Here's the way they would say it. Okay. We're the same church. Okay. There's just a schism between mama and papa. But their priests can, can marry. Yes. Okay. Yep. Let me correct that. Married men can join the priesthood, I believe. In the, or, okay. yes. Yeah, the Orthodox Church. Yes. You don't marry. Correct. But married men can join the priesthood. Yeah, if their wife dies, they don't remarry. Correct. Well, that made more sense than Paul <laughs> Well, here's the thing: you have to really, you have to really understand the, these doctrines versus order issues. Because if you listen to the press, they freak out about anything that happens, and they put everything in the same category. So, like, well, this is a reformist pope. Therefore, we're going to have, and they just list all these left-wing issues and say, "See, the church is going left-wing," and all the conservatives in the church freak out and say, "No, that can't be right." which it isn't because that's not happening because we don't change dogma, right? But matters of order can change. Recently, the, the, they changed the way that the annulment process works and tried to streamline it and because it was extremely cumbersome and a horrible ordeal for people who had to go through it. Um, some people that were more on the traditional side, well, oh my gosh, they can't change the doctrine of divorce and remarriage. Nobody was changing the doctrine. See what I mean? It's just the way in which we try to sort this out for people. So Pope Francis is exceptional from the standpoint of being a caring person who tries to figure out ways within the order of the church to make it better for the people. And you have people on the far right of the church and the far left, or not even in the church, people that are from the outside kind of criticize, and they try to make it relativism or tyranny, and it's neither and never was. So there's the outside view of the church, and then there's what's really going on from the inside. And you see how different the actual issues are with celibacy? In fact, you know, just case in point, the ranks of holy orders, bishop, priest, and deacon, from, from the very beginning, you can read in Scripture, the Acts of the Apostles, but then about a thousand years into the church, you stopped having permanent deacons. The only, the only office of the academic was a transitional deacon. You were a deacon for a period of time, and then you were a day. 
there were no permanent deepens. It was restored at the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s and 70s. That's when the diaconate, the permanent diaconate came about. Uh, and it's flourishing in some places and not others. There are some bishops in this diocese who really don't welcome permanent so. Now, that being said, there are practical reasons, as Jeff has touched on. I think about our priest and everything that he is doing and how poor Father Vince would ever possibly be a good father and husband with his responsibilities to us. Because in a lot of ways, the parish is the wife and children to a priest. Yeah. And this was one of the, the kind of underlying realities I think that the church recognized when they made this rule. Which is why we love our priests and try to take good care of them. Yeah, always take good care of your priests. This is very important because, you know, priests, they're not married. And so the refinement that comes from living with a wife, sometimes they got rough edges on them. <laughs> and the priests need a lot of maternal support and care. So... Anytime you can help the priest, give him a lift, give him something, do that. Take care of the priest. That's really, that's really important. And, and, but of course, if you had the right number of priests where every single parish church had a priest in it, you, know, you wouldn't have priests so spread so thin. And that's part of the argument that the Vatican is debating. Maybe we should appoint some married veteran priests or even deacons with extreme ex lots of experience I'm just going to use him as an example, but obviously he has his own choices in his life and his commitments. But, you know, we all know his character and the kind of person he is. If, if the Pope and the bishop said, okay, we need priests and we need to appoint somebody, and they said, deacon, you know, you're the kind of, we would all agree, he's the kind of guy that would make a priest. And if he was agreed with that, he could be turned into a priest just like that and could take on one of those churches. So if you had a need for that, the Pope and the bishops could do that. There's lots of permanent deacons who can be converted instantly to become priests, and they have vast veteran experience. No. I'm pretty sure once you join the permanent diaconate, you can't. That's not true. Well, you're, true? you're right. It, it is, well... Only because the permanent diaconate is so called. It, it's, it, you, like, um, you could be, uh, I could, if my wife passed, mm -hmm. um, I could, I could petition. Oh, oh okay. Oh, I see. However... That's not, but I didn't get ordained a deacon to become a priest. I, right. I was called to right. be a deacon. Be a deacon. Yes. And I think what I heard you say, the Pope wants to do it with the bishops. <laughs> That's that right. flexibility. That Correct. But that would still require your consent. It would require consent. <laughs> Can't be drafted into the consent. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't even know about that. That's a good question. If St. Paul came and said, you're a priest or a bishop, could you say no way? So if you knocked her away. But if Paul held you down and put those hands on that guy. Because remember when God called Moses? Moses tried to get out of it and God wasn't having any of it. So I don't know. There might be times when for the sake of the church, the Pope just says, this is what you're going to do. And you're like, okay. I mean, if you had an audience of the Pope at Rome and he said, I need you to do this. Are you going to say no? You know what I mean? That'd be a really tough one. So... I mean, it's, there's some monarchical elements to this. When the king says, I need this done, you're the guy. You're like, well, okay. But I don't know what the tacticalities of that are. See what happens when we get too much in the nitty-gritty? All hell breaks loose. <coughs> we need to do the physical and the 
Marriage, right. Okay, so marriage. What is the physicality of marriage? Oh, seriously. <laughs> Sex, my friends. Sex. If you're on a deserted island with just you and your fiancé, there are no rings to be had, but you can get married. All right? And what is the immaterial? Fidelity. Self-giving faith to the other person. Okay? Who? Oh, I was just going to add that what is also bespeaking in terms of image is, is the church. And of which we are a participant. Who is the minister of marriage? Yep. It is not the bishop. It is not the priest. You do not need them. It is the couple. Man and woman. Nowadays, we need to specify. So if you and your fiancé are on a deserted island, cut off as castaways, you can have some of the sacraments. You can, make your vows. you can make your vows to one another and have sex with each other, and you are then married. If you have a baby, you can baptize that baby. At that point, your powers begin to diminish. <laughs> <laughs> Don't start having the Eucharist on the, on the side because you're going to run into the King Saul problem. That did not go well for him. So, but... Well, how, is it Hawaii? There's churches there. Okay, that's my question. Yeah, look, as Catholics, it's appropriate for us to be married within the order of the church. Okay. So, we don't... The same way that you ought to, <coughs> if you have a priest or deacon available, you yes. ought to have your child baptized according to the ordinary uh, rite. Correct. We always follow the ordinary path, which is within the community of the church and the mass and the liturgy. But, marriage... In marriage, when the priest is up there putting the sign of the cross of the couple, he is not marrying them. The sacrament isn't instituted until the fidelity and the sexual unity are achieved. If there is lacking either one of these, this is not a sacramental marriage. And this is why some of you, if you're trying to get your annulments done, etc., and you look back into your, um, your, your, your crashed marriages, okay, which... If you have this problem, I know, I went through this too. Okay, These are de devastating things. Rarely is the problem that there was no sex. This is not a modern problem. Occasionally this is an issue, but not usually. There's something wrong in the formation of this marriage. One or the other party lacked the full self-giving commitment that's required for marriage. It is a huge commitment. And it is, let's just be blunt, Americans today have no conception of what this really requires. And we're going to be talking about this around Valentine's Day. We're going to have two talks on marriage and what, what it really is. And we'll talk about that. But when you go through the annulment process, what it's partly supposed to do is make you aware of those flaws in yourself and in your you know, previous partner. And then to the future, you don't make those same errors. And you can give yourself to your partner in fullness. The sexual act of self-giving is almost an imagistic representation of the full self-giving that marriage really is which is a daily act of giving for the sake of the other. Okay. Holy orders, the material, <coughs> and the spiritual. What is the matter? The deacon already told us. The hands. 
Notice the physical transmission. Okay, realize that when the, the hands went on the deacon's head, okay? Those hands were conferring on him what was conferred on them, what was conferred on them, what was conferred on them. All the way back to St. Peter and St. Paul. It is a living tradition. It's amazing, right? It's absolutely amazing. Okay, the hands and we really need to keep these straight, okay? And what is the immaterial part? What does the laying on the hands confer? Ordination. Authority. And the authority of the office. Does responsibility That's the consent element that we were just, just laughing about, whether a pre you could be forced to become a priest. Yeah. But it seems like the answer is you must consent under ordinary circumstances. Okay, and who administers this? The bishop, right? Only a bishop, even deacons, yes? Is that correct? All right, here we go. Reconciliation, formerly confession or penance, our new positive word. What, what is the, uh, the matter and what is the spirit? Well, the matter is the act of confessing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure is. I'm reconciling. <laughs> That's just, and confessing is easier for my Protestant head to get around, okay? Yeah, because the reconciliation is contingent on the confession. The reconciliation is the aim of confession, to restore the relationship. Right. People get the same thing confused with forgiveness and reconciliation. You can forgive a person that you can't reconcile with because they refuse to connect to you. You can also forgive a person who wants to be forgiven, and then you're reconciled. As people, we're told, as Christians, we're told to forgive our enemies. But your enemy does not want a relationship with you, has not confessed anything, and is swearing he's going to do it again. So you're forgiving him doesn't mean he's got anything right. Forgiveness means you put the sin away. It's negative. So when you forgive your enemy, you're putting the sin away from yourself so you don't treat him as though you're going to get him. But what you really hope is that he'll eventually confess make it right, and lead to reconciliation. With God, God never holds anything against us. So when we confess, it instantly activates this, act, this uh, the right of reconciliation. And so when your confession is sincere, the priest can then confer what? Absolution. And this is just, again, one of these absolutely extraordinary things in the church. Well, and the absolution comes from... <laughs> Christ, um, what's the word I want? Him saying to the apostles, you, you can go in my name, forgive sins in my name. Yep. You know, you can do those things. I guess that's what a lot of Protestants have difficulty with, right? Why do yeah. I need a priest to absolve me after this death? God forgive me and God will. And I guess that's true because uh -huh. uh, uh, that's fact. God, God will forgive you. But remember what Elisa said. These are the, what we call the ordinary, not meaning, meaning the way in which it's done. Yes. And there are extraordinary ways that, you know, you can say to God, crap, I just did it again. I wish I hadn't done that. And you're not going to get to confession for two weeks anyway. It doesn't mean that you're not sincerely sorry right now. Sure. But this is the ordinary method and mode. Okay. Oh, I was just going to add, because I was thinking about something that I think it was St. Thomas said, which is that 
God binds his grace to the sacraments. It does not follow that his grace is bound by the sacraments. Correct. So, does, does that make sense? God acts through the sacraments. It doesn't follow that God cannot act in other ways. Oh. However, okay. given that we're human beings mm-hmm. and we function very well in structure and repetition okay. and order and predictability, God gave us seven ordinary means by which he administers his grace to us in a regular and daily basis. Okay, so I'm just going to say this because for someone who was not raised in the Catholic faith, that what you said is so important because this misunderstanding causes a huge problem in a schism. I mean, it really does. Because uh, seriously... uh, I have family members who are Catholic or they won't say it, they won't say it, but are worshiping idols and they are heretics and they are apostate and all of those things. And when you put it like that, none of that is true. None of it is true. None of it is demonstrably true. None of it is even true. That's right. The line I always thought of was um, God did not create um, man for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for a man. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, like, it isn't that God can't do it some other way, but he gave us this way so that we recognize that it's happening. Yes. Yeah, and it is happening. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. But when the priest says, I absolve you, mm-hmm. you are literally forgiven. The priests have the power to do that. Right, and it doesn't mean that I'm not forgiven if I don't, if I, if I ask God to forgive me. Correct then that will happen. Right, but here's the thing. When you're a Protestant and you go to confession for the first time... Yeah, which is something I'm not looking forward to. Okay, I understand that. But here's the thing. When that priest at the end of it says, you're absolved, as a Protestant, you are going to be in shock. Because the full weight of the church and the reality of this is going to fall in your head like a ton of bricks. This is real. That priest has been divinely appointed by Christ to speak with his voice. Right. He exalts you. He is speaking as Christ in persona Christa, Christi. Yes. I never studied Latin. <laughs> in persona Christi. Who sins you forgiven are forgiven them. Who sins you hope fast And this is so important for people because many people carry a burden of guilt and they have they sometimes confuse it with regret. And you always tend to carry the regret. But you go back and, the, and you go back and you're like, I was absolved. And I'll just give you a personal experience. I had something that I had been carrying around for a long time that weighed on me. And I talked to the priest about this. And when he said, I absolve you, after that, on a psychological bit level, it didn't bother me anymore. And I found that remarkable. I appreciated it. I didn't expect it. And I'm not going to say psychologically it works that way for everyone all the time. But I found that very interesting. So again, remember, Catholicism is not a Jesus and me movement. It's about fullness. God uses all these intermediaries to deliver his grace. And we are about physical community. And so the priest physically forgives the sin. It's real. Human, not angel. Okay, finally, anointing of the sick. The matter? But only the priest can be uh, absolved. Oh, yeah, the minister. 
Only a priest. And the bishop. Yeah. The deacon says you'll be doing confession. That's okay, but you can't apply. Is that actually true? Can you hear confession? No. You're of course I can. So can you. In that sense, right? But you wouldn't go into the... I didn't think so. <laughs> now, he's, now he's playing tricks on me. Okay. It's fair. It's fair. Okay. The matter of... What are we talking about here? Anointing of the sick? What did they do the other week? The oil, yes, correct. And what is the um, the immaterial spiritual part? Healing. And notice it's both spiritual healing and physical. Because if you heard the words, it included the forgiveness of sins. That's why we link it up with the last rites as we were talking about, which includes this. And this is done by the priest or the bishop. All right. Now, what I want you to see is just this extraordinary, let's call it, life cycle. Because in our world, we're born into the world, we grow up in a family, we get married, you know, we eat food, we drink water, we eventually get to the point where we die, right? And along the way, we have a lot of doctors. It's exactly the same thing in the church. This is a human faith. We are born. Baptism. We become citizens. Confirmation. We eat and drink, but we do better than water. We use wine. The Eucharist. Right? We have a form of life that guides our entire being. Our, the vocations, marriage or the holy orders. Right? Then we have problems. Physical problems and spiritual problems. The spiritual problems we handle through reconciliation. The physical sickness problems we handle through the anointing of the sick to be completed finally with the last rite, which is the last anointing of the sick, and of course the sacrament of reconciliation merged together, which we call the last rites. Life cycle. Okay, the whole time we've, we've been trying to emphasize is the sacraments cover your life with grace. It is a slow process over your entire life. It's a life of ordinariness, of habit. The spiritual life is a virtue. Okay, that's what it is. It's another virtue. And it isn't something that happens in these punctuated, extraordinary, like uh, emotional experience, fervent things. We don't live in a perpetual state of fervor, just like love, you know? Love, you fall in love, it's fireworks and everything else. How many married people have you ever heard who said, oh yeah, that's the norm? That is not normal. Okay, that is an insane moment designed to get two people who are so different from each other, it's shocking they could ever think that living together made sense and convince them that, yeah, this works. Then they get married and they find out, right? <laughs> they did a book like this. They did a book like this, and I bought it. It was advice from people who've been married 50 years or more. And it was profound. But here's the general rule of every single person. You know what the first thing they basically said was? Well, marriage takes a lot of work. <laughs> falling in love does not take a lot of work. Hence, marriage and falling in love are not the same thing. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. So lastly, because we're going to be talking with Father Jeremy in a week and a half, remember next week, no class, then Saturday will be the retreat, okay? He's going to be talking to us about the Mass. The Mass incorporates all these human elements together. It incorporates sensation, aspiration, 
the intellect, emotion, our choice, volition, and the imagination. So it is a completely human activity. In the Roman Catholic Church, we do not practice reductionism. What I mean by that is we do not try to reduce all of our spiritual experience and put it into one human faculty, which is what you tend to find in some of the Protestant world. So in some Protestant places, for their worship services, they'll have a 60-minute sermon. They might do the Lord's Supper once or twice a year. What they are saying is the worship is reduced to the intellect. We're feeding the intellect. And do they feed the intellect? Huge. What about the rest of our person? Okay, other ones, well, other Protestant services, you go in there and you'll say, oh, am I in a movie theater? They have a huge stage, huge rock and roll band, theaters, lights, big comfy chairs with the big soda things. And what are they? They're focusing on the sensation, right? Entertainment. It's entertainment Christianity. And they will wow you with the light show. But what about your will? What about your hope? What about the imagination? What about the intellect? And people don't tend to stay in those churches a long time, do they? They attract all the young people, and then they fall apart. You see them popping up at places, and then they change their names, change their order, and the same thing happens again and again. Other ones will incorporate passionate music and almost like a sales pitch. For the, you know how they'll have those weekly sales meetings try to get you hyped up to go out and sell the thing? And they're catering only to the emotions and trying to get a real emotional high. Remember that we hear about the snake people in uh, Appalachia, right? Well, that's some emotional experience. You've got to be pretty much completely crazy to be carrying around a rattlesnake. We do not carry snakes. And we don't have heights of emotion. You don't see us dancing in the aisles in the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? And if you think about it, we're just kind of ordinary. And we're thinking, yeah, that's right. Because human life is ordinary. Intellect. Emotion. Sensation, imagination, volition, aspiration. It's everything at once. That is what's going on in the Mass. And you participate in the Mass, something way bigger than yourself. And every time you go, you participate and you grow a little bit more. And during the week, you live out faith, hope, and love, and you grow a little bit more. The spiritual life is the life of a plant. A very long haul growth. Steady, slow, stable, ordinary. Understand? It's human. That's what we're into. Okay. So, we will see you in a week and a half at the retreat. We're having, we'll have next, uh, the 